This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And it's been a pretty busy week for the Prime Minister this week. He's just got back from Tokyo. He was there for Shinzo Abe's state funeral. While Anthony Albanese was away, the Optus data breach blew up and it's still causing angst for customers, of course, for Optus executives, but also for politicians. And we're going to be joined soon by Josh Taylor from The Guardian to talk about what it means for those people whose data was breached and what it means for the government in terms of updating our cybersecurity and our privacy laws. Because, you know, PK, as we'll discuss with Josh, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, this week described this Optus breach as basic. So we're going to take a look at that. Before we get into that, though, PK, a really key moment for our parliament and for the nation this week when the Attorney-General introduced legislation for a national anti-corruption commission. Hoorah at last. The electorate wants it. The last government promised it. Now we have a bill. And on the face of it, it seems as if the government's done a pretty good job in getting close to what the crossbench, at least, has been calling for, do you think? Yeah, that's right, Fran. I think they have. Under the government's proposals, the new commission will be independent. That's quite key. It will have sweeping powers of surveillance, including uh, the power to tap phones and to use surveillance devices. It can also compel witnesses to appear and answer questions. It can compel the production of documents and search premises without a warrant. Uh, It will have retrospective powers, and that's quite key, obviously. It will also uh, refer criminal conduct to federal police. So it is far-reaching and broad. Um, And, you know, as the the government has pointed out, the last jurisdiction, um, you know, given all the states and territories, have a corruption commission. Now we we will have one federally, and that is a big deal. So this is where the rubber hits the road, though. The default position in the bill, though, so this is the sticking point, if you like, is that the commission hearings will be held in private. That's the default position. So the majority of the time, that's what will happen. Uh, The commission itself can make a decision to make hearings public, but a particular form of language has been used, which is contentious, that it will be in exceptional circumstances. Now, the commission itself can do that, but the Greens and the Independents say the hearings should be in public, and that's the only way to restore trust in our political processes. Um, As the Green spokesperson, uh, David Shoebridge, said to me on RM Breakfast, uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant, and the idea being that the public nature of of having these um, hearings allows that scrutiny, the fear, you know, and it is a fear, the fear of, of going into that process will put people on their toes. That's the idea. Um, mm. And that they're concerned that the government has gone for a default position, which allows for too much privacy in all of this. Uh, but Fran, I mean, <laughs> this is this is the contentious bit now. The government, and you'll go to this, I th- think it's interesting 
they could get it through with the support of the opposition now, couldn't they, in many ways? But Well, but, it sounds like it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has sort of been all sort of user-friendly this week for the government. He's come out early and signalled the coalition after years, years of dragging their heels on this, of bagging out the state-based anti-corruption inquiries. He says are likely to support this model. Let's, let's have a listen to Peter Dutton. We are working sensibly and constructively with the government to implement an integrity commission which will root out uh, any corrupt behaviour, which will hold people to account, um, but not conduct show trials and destroy the careers and the reputations of people that have no case to answer. So we are working closely with the government, that's the key phrase there, but also making it clear that opposition support is dependent on it not being described, you know, what he's called there as show trials in the past. They've called the New South Wales ICAC, for instance, a kangaroo court. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's their red line, if you like. So a couple of things here, PK, I think. The first is that definition of exceptional circumstances. That, that's, I think, the big one, certainly the big one for the Greens and the crossbench, and we'll come to that in a minute. And the second is the politics of it. Does the government have a choice to make now? Stick with the current limitation on public hearings in exceptional circumstances and get it through with opposition support or lower that bar to ensure more public hearings and get it across the line with the support of the Greens and the independents in the Senate, leaving the opposition out in the cold. Let's deal with this one first, the politics of it. There's always the politics. Oh, yeah, so much politics. OK, so the politics here, you'll recall, or our, our listeners right now, you know, running, walking, making some dinner, you will be listening to this podcast remembering Kangaroo Court. Remember that language used by the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison? The former government really campaigned hard against this idea of show trials and um, Gladys Berejiklian was held up as, you know, a real victim of show trials and she was obviously a very popular premier at some points and so they've really tried to emotionally um, make the argument that people's careers have been ruined. So they have been wanting this not to have this, you know, public element. The politics here is if Labor just took the votes of the coalition and went down that road um, and just, you know, get get their bill through, get an integrity commission tick. It's politically fraught to do that, I think, Fran, because um, if you look at uh, the, the sort of politics over the last year or two or much longer, but if, particularly during the election campaign, it was the Teal Independents and the Greens and others who were able to successfully argue that integrity was at the centre of our political problems and that the coalition wasn't serious about it. So to, to, do, to look like you're doing a deal which shrouds this process in secrecy, I think would be politically problematic for Labor. Mm. And as Mark Dreyfus puts it back to the politics, uh, he wants everyone to vote for it because he's got he's got a very good point here if the greens and the teals and the coalition all voted for whatever model they land on it does give it incredible political support right that the green light that everyone is behind this thing so that's the politics do you go down the road of just getting it through or do you go for 
not allowing the Teals or the Greens to say that Labor has done a dodgy deal by um, further negotiation on this. And then there's the definition itself, which you've raised, of um, what are exceptional circumstances. Now, I spoke to the Attorney-General on breakfast this morning, and he was adamant this ultimately would ultimately be about the Independent Commission to determine what it looks at, but also was quite defensive of the definition in itself. Here he is. If the Commission has discovered serious or systemic corruption that needs to be exposed and it's the right case that the Commission can demonstrate the work that it's been doing and it thinks that it's an appropriate time to do so, then that'll be a matter for the Commission to determine, but that could constitute exceptional circumstances. Okay, so exceptional circumstances. Now, I put to him, is this more like the Victorian model, the IBAC model or the um, the New South Wales ICAC model? He, he said ICAC model, which is public, public hearings, and he, he pointed out to me that, in fact, it's in 5% of investigations that are that they become public right that you see these these cases mm. being played out publicly so i said to him so is it about 5% that you'd also like the national body to go to and again which is something you will hear a lot from the government he says that's ultimately up to the commission but why would he raise the 5% friend he's trying to say don't see this as us closing this down there will be a public element to this. Um, so it's not entirely, as he says, the way that the former government wanted to do it, which was to have no public hearings. Yeah. Is, and, and is he up for negotiation? The, that's a big question, though. Well, or is it for him to negotiate? Because ultimately, I mean, just looking at the legislation, hearing the Attorney-General this morning, I mean, it seems to me the government has pr almost got this right. The independent commission will make the choice. That's got to be where the buck stops. So that gives us that independence. As long as that term, exceptional circumstances, is not some legally binding definition, that there's room for interpretation by the commissioner, then it looks okay, doesn't it? I thought that New South Wales ICAC example was a good one. The fact that everyone thinks of ICAC when we think the public hearing model, we think of Gladys Berejiklian, as you mentioned, or Barry O'Farrell or Arthur Sinodinus, remember, you know, got called as a witness at some point, not, um, you know, no fault found for him. It wasn't that, he was a witness there. Um, but the reality is only 5%, as you say, of those ICAC investigations are public. So the bulk of the work is conducted behind closed doors, and you would expect that that would be the same for this federal or national anti-corruption commission. So it seems to me they're almost there. I mean, the, the Attorney General, I thought it was interesting, he did say that the government would read every submission to the inquiry and would take on board all the ideas and, and weigh them up. So he's not closing the door to any further change, but it does seem to me, I think, looks as they're pretty close here. Yeah, they are close. And I think that language around that, the way he answers that is really important um, because he he goes into it still really pushing the spirit of cooperation. He hasn't shut down or dismissed the criticism. He certainly has defended the model he's put out and said that he thinks it's a fair model, but he, he's really talking up the committee process which he's established and then getting this thing done, wanting it legislated by the end of the year and actually operational by mid-next year um, to start doing 
it's work, right? After, after you know, as he said to me, um, I was a bit sort of excitable this morning, said uh, on Thursday morning we're recording this, but, you know, after it sets itself up, yeah, getting into the work that, that I think the public expects it to do. And there is on this one a genuine um, clamouring or public, there is a view from the public that this is really serious work and it's important to restore that trust, I think, after yeah, it's think been eroded right. so obviously. Um, PK, just before we go to Josh about Optus, which I know, you know, there's a huge amount of interest in, obviously, so many Australians affected. Um, you, you talked earlier about the Greens and their reference to, you know, when considering integrity and sunlight being the best disinfectant, let the sunlight in. In other words, let's let's pull open the doors and have this done in the public. Lately, it could be said the Greens are accused of not letting much sunlight into their own internal affairs. I'm talking about allegations of bullying against one of their senators, Senator Libya Thorpe, that leaked out this week. Yeah, so look, this this has previously been on the record. This is the revelation of a complaint by Auntie Geraldine Atkinson, um, uh, who, who claimed that Lydia Thorpe, a Green senator from Victoria, um, had uh, really had inappropriate conduct towards her in a meeting in Canberra. So that was previously revealed. What's new that makes it a, a big issue is that Lydia Thorpe's former chief of staff, a letter he wrote to his leader, um, Adam Bant, leaked again this week, that's the new stuff, where he gives the same account of the meeting, which is pretty extraordinary. He was her chief of staff, no longer her chief of staff. And the issue this week was that the complaint made by the Indigenous elder was not responded to by Adam Bant. So I asked the Greens justice spokesperson this question and some pretty political words were used to sort of avoid answering this. <laughs> now, the Greens leader, Adam Bant, has now conceded, we're recording this on a Thursday, that he should have responded to a written complaint sent to him by an Aboriginal elder. Because it was elder. a long time ago. It was a long time ago, wasn't it, that that Absolutely. complaint was lodged? And, and there hasn't been a response um, and that the two issues that she raised, he says he's now dealt with. Now, I think this story will probably uh, have more dimensions. Um, uh, certainly there are people watching this very closely, but I think the broader issues of integrity should be raised because um, any politician uh, should be scrutinised and this is a uh, allegation that was made and it's not clearly been properly dealt with if this elder writes a letter and doesn't even get a response from the Greens mm. leader um, up until, you know, the age has uh, written this story and really pursued this vigorously. It's just a little thing that's going on in the third party um, and force, you know. A green slide is what um, <laughs> Adam Bank claimed happened at the last election. The Greens deserve scrutiny too. And I think that um, that on this issue you can't sort of say you need integrity in politics and not be prepared to provide that disinfectant for your own party. Yeah, it goes to really the capacity of that party to um, have proper structures in place to review these kind of things. And that's important for all parties, including the third party, which is the Greens. On that note, PK, shall we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Josh Taylor is a reporter at Guardian Australia and our guest in the party room. Josh, welcome. Great to be back with you. So good to have you this week, Josh. You are the expert in these matters that we're going to be talking about. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been a busy week for, for me and for Optus and for, I guess, all of Optus's customers as well. Now, the Optus data breach this week is quite obviously a massive PR disaster for the company. Uh, not just PR, just general disaster. It, it's throwing up curveballs for the government too, though. But let's start by just addressing the incident itself, Josh. Optus is calling it a sophisticated cyber attack, but that's not how the government sees it. This was the Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill on 7.30 speaking to Laura Tingle. What is uh, of concern for us is how what is a quite a basic hack was undertaken on Optus. We should not have a telecommunications provider in this country, which has effectively left the window open for data of this nature to be stolen. And the thing that's very uh, exercising for me as cybersecurity minister is why did this happen and how can we make sure it never happens again? Well, you certainly don't seem to be buying the line from Optus that this was a sophisticated attack. Well, it wasn't, so no. Right. It wasn't, so no. So, Josh, (laughs) this still hasn't been cleared up. It's two different accounts. Who's right? Well, I'm probably leaning more towards the minister's side of things. I I think that it's uh, it's one of those things where Optus is still maintaining it was a sophisticated attack, but based on the evidence we've seen from uh, the person who allegedly obtained some of the data, um, and from, and I guess, just the reporting around it, it does sound like it was an Optus era where they, as the minister sort of said, effectively left the window open and allowed this sort of all all the customer data to to be exfiltrated from from their systems very easily. And, and it's it's something that uh, it does happen quite frequently. Uh, like a lot of companies do leave these things open accidentally or something like that, but we don't usually see it to the scale of Optus. It usually means that multiple companies have it all at once, not not to the to the the degree that Optus has had. Yeah, you would expect a major corporation like Optus, who've got a lot of employees, you would think, working around their cybersecurity to have closed those doors. Well, I would have thought anyway. But um, look, can we just drill down a bit, Josh, because I keep reading these huge numbers of, you know, almost 10 million people being affected by this, 10 million current or former Optus subscribers. But then there's another figure, 2.8 million of those are classed as major data breaches. So can you help us out here what the real number is, um, what's the difference between, you know, what's a major data breach and what's the general data breach, and what danger are these customers and ex-customers exposed Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, no matter how much of your data was actually subject to the breach, it's obviously going to be a huge concern for you. But uh, in terms of the numbers, the 10 million is is essentially the numbers that we're looking at uh, for people who just had uh, all the information apart from identity document numbers taken. But the subset, the 2.8 million is is people who had their their passport numbers, their license numbers or their Medicare card numbers in, in the breach. And what difference does that make in terms of the order of, you know, um, vulnerability? Well, it's one of those things when, you know, whenever you sign up for a new service, you sign up for a new rental property, you you go to apply for a loan or something like that, you, you are generally required to provide 100 points of ID. And with these numbers that you get, you get some way or even all the way with passport numbers usually to providing the 100 points of ID. So uh, it is obviously a bigger concern when, when this sort of information is out there. And that's why I guess you're seeing the government now move to make it easier for people to potentially replace their passport numbers and and licence numbers and everything like that. Yeah, so they've written to Optus um, saying, you know, you should cover the cost for passports. Optus hasn't exactly been very fast to respond. But there is now a bit of pressure from the government uh, who is really putting it on Optus. The opposition, though, has been calling on the government to do more to respond. Is that a fair assessment that the government hasn't, yeah, should do more lifting here? 
I mean, the only sort of work that the government can do here is is what we're going to be talking about, I guess, with in terms of the regulatory reform. They can't really force Optus's hands under existing law. They they just have to apply the pressure. And I think, you know, Optus Optus seems to be pretty slow in its response, not only to customers at the moment, but also the government. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Optus um, agreeing to pay those passport numbers. But it it has created such a mess because you know the the, the passport system was already under pressure from mm. everyone renewing their passports already. So this is only going to add to it and, and make it much more costly for everyone. So I can understand why they don't want the taxpayers to be footing the bill on this one. No, as you say, footing the bill is one thing, but the inconvenience of it and then the wait, like people are already, like you say, waiting six weeks minimum for their passports to come through now. Imagine the burden this is going to put on the passport office and the same on the on the driver's licence people and, oh, it's just a nightmare really getting all that stuff together. If you think about all the paperwork you might have to do to try and apply for a new Medicare number, a new passport and a new driver's licence, it's just... Really, really rotten. Um, so, Josh, the coalition says the government's been too slow to respond to help people protect themselves with all that kind of stuff, um, but also with law changes. Before we talk about, you know, what the government needs to do immediately to change the laws, how do our laws compare to other countries around this stuff? Are other countries doing more? Are they ahead of us, behind us? For instance, you know, remember some years ago, the British national health system was um, struck by ransomware attacks. That was some time ago. Is Has the UK in response to that really toughened things up and are, are we lagging behind? Yeah, I think if you're going to look for what I would call the gold standard, it's Europe. And they've got really, really strong privacy laws that, that often end up flowing over here because companies end up working in different countries and so it's just easier to sort of make their laws consistent. But um, they've got really strict penalties. You know, when, the, when Claire O'Neill was talking about uh, companies facing fines of hundreds of millions of dollars for this sort of breach. She was talking about what happens in Europe, and I think that that's probably where we're going to be going uh, when, when the government announces, finally announces its its uh, response to the Privacy Act review. And I say, you know, the coalition can say that the government has acted slowly, but this Privacy Act review has been going on for two years, and it started under the former Morrison government. So they have been sitting on it for quite a while too. We could have progressed along this path, but it became a lower priority for the government in the last couple of years. Now, the Attorney General spoke to me on Radio National Breakfast this morning and actually said that by the end of this year, he wants to um, make some changes to privacy laws um, as a matter of urgency, uh, which showed that they are clearly very um, aware of just how quickly this needs to happen. What did you make of that, Josh? Because that takes it a little further and what would they be looking at? Well, I reckon, you know, it, it's kind of handy that the, I guess the lead work has been done on this. They have been, they're already in the process of doing this review anyway. Um, I think we're going to see probably stronger penalties for companies who are caught in doing these breaches. I think, you know, we, we've, there've been talk about class action lawsuits and things like that too. But other than that, there's very little recourse at the moment in the Privacy Act in terms of what people can get in terms of compensation and taking direct action against companies for doing this sort of stuff. And I um, I know that was something that was flagged in some of the earlier discussion papers, but it's worth noting I, I went and read through Optus's submissions to those uh, those discussion papers and Optus was unsurprisingly opposed to these measures. So mm. uh, I think that's probably the, the main things we're going to be seeing, I think. But what about our privacy in terms of what we have to hand over to these sort of mm. companies in the first place and then how long they keep it? I mean, the more this is aerated, the more you find yourself asking, but why does a telecommunications company need to keep my passport number on file and let alone need to keep it 
when I haven't been a customer there for three years or whatever it is. Same goes for your Medicare number. I mean, are, are the privacy laws here that need changing in terms of what the companies are allowed to gather from you and what they're allowed to keep and how long they have to keep it? Yeah, I think uh, Mark Dreyfus has flagged that this is something that they're actively looking at. I mean, if you've got a situation where everyone from banks to real estate agents to telecommunications companies have to keep on record for a set amount of time uh, all your personal information like this, they do make themselves vulnerable to attack. And if they don't have a proper security in place, it does make them, you know, basically like a honeypot. And I think that this is something that we need to talk about. And I think that this will be addressed part of the Privacy Act review because, you know, you've got a situation where this could happen any sort of day to any sort of business and we can't go through this process all this time where everyone has to go and replace all their, their identification all the time just because they've been part of a breach. I think we're probably going to see where the timeline for keeping the data is going to be shortened or I think maybe eventually we'll move to a stage where the government will say you can verify through a, a, a MyGov ID or something like that where the government takes more ownership of the data itself. And that's we're talking about the privacy laws here, but what about our cybersecurity laws? I mean, as you say, plenty of companies can leave the door open. Um, Optus is a major corporation. Are our companies good enough with their cybersecurity regime and are our laws tough enough to make them good enough, if you know what I mean? I think, yeah, that's definitely going to be something we need to look at. I mean, aside from anything else, Optus does offer cybersecurity services separate to everything else. So this is... If a company that deals with this sort of stuff every day can't get it right, what hope do every other business have? Do you think we're going to see changes to our cybersecurity legislation? I mean, we had that critical infrastructure bill um, a couple of years ago that was quite high profile, which used the Australian Signals Director to help protect critical systems in the event of cyber attacks. That was quite contentious. But can you see ASD, for instance, having more of a role here or, or more pressure on the corporations to be accountable for cybersecurity? I think in the last decade, we've seen tranches and tranches of national security and cybersecurity legislation, and it's getting more and more complicated for businesses to figure out what they need to do to comply and what, what the rules around that are. And I think we maybe need to take a sort of holistic view of how this should actually work in practice and, and potentially what needs to change. And I think that needs to be part of the conversation too, because you know if we're going to require companies to keep more and more of our data as part of national security things as well, um, we need to discuss how that is balanced with privacy law as well and, and the potential for that sort of stuff to be leaked. Now, Josh, we've also at the beginning of the podcast been speaking about the new Anti-Corruption Commission, but let's just talk about what it means for whistleblowers, if we can, with you, because Attorney General Mark Dreyfus says the government's plan includes improving protections for whistleblowers, but privacy advocates say that protections in the bill could be a lot stronger still. The Attorney General is promising wider reforms, but that's down the track. That's not in this reform. What do you make of the government's decision here? Uh, it's been fascinating to watch. I, I've been thinking about how they seem to be not weakening. I think that's probably not fair to say that they're they're weakening from what they initially promised. I think they want to get to a point where everyone in the parliament will pass some form of anti-corruption commission. That includes the coalition. And so I think we're seeing for the first time, and it's something that we haven't seen for about a decade, where um, you know, the, the former government was, was all about the politics of the wedge, whatever they could do to, to wedge Labor on something. And we're seeing a point where, at least for the initial stage for the, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, Mark Dreyfus is very keen to get have everyone on board and, and I guess, establish this, this uh, commission with, with a level of legitimacy that 
means that it's more likely to stay in and be a, an institution going forward. What do you think? Is it fair enough to have this anti-corruption commission and then promise, you know, in 12 months' time we'll, we'll do something about the whistleblowers? Uh, yeah, I think you need to give people reassurances. In, I think the, the biggest uh, issue facing whistleblowers at the moment is that they, they don't feel safe coming forward at the moment. Uh, you know, we've seen multiple, multiple prosecutions in the last couple of years. And if even if we have a National Integrity Commission in place, will those whistleblowers feel confident enough to come forward to, to the, the Corruption Commission and speak out when they are worried that the existing laws might still get them caught up? I think, I think they kind of need to go hand in glove. Now, just finally, before we bid you farewell, Josh, we should mention an interesting moment from Insiders last Sunday. It's all well and good for the opposition to say Labor has to do more and that's what oppositions do, right, to governments. And they've been in government for a couple of months now, still early days, but it's been a couple of months. That sort of stuff will happen and they'll, they'll critique. But we had an admission from a Liberal frontbencher this week that they didn't actually have any policies. Here it is. We're not in government no, anymore, but, but, so it's their policy. No, but I'm asking what, I, what your view is, though, now. But do, my, do, well, do my view is that the government will make its decision. What it does need to do, though, is address those other cost-of-living pressures that are facing Australians Well, this today. is one of them. This is one of them, and I'm just asking you your position. You have positions on other things, like the age pension, for example. You've announced what the government should be doing there. So on this, on fuel, should it come to an end? Well, that was our policy. But now... And it is, it is our policy. It was our it policy. Well, we don't have policies. We're in opposition. We're not in government. Well, you do. You have a policy on the age pension. What, what about fuel? It's not a policy that we can implement, even if we had a different position. We don't have policies. <laughs> That's a shadow finance minister, Jane Hume, there on Insiders being interrogated by David Spears. We don't have policies. PK, Josh, let me ask both of you. That's not a great way for an opposition to be presenting itself as, as a credible alternative government, isn't it? Even in the early stage of a term. Well, I thought it was. I was watching a Clark and Door sketch there a little bit. It was, it was a bit, a bit of back and forth there. I, I find it interesting that they were kind of trying to have it both ways. They, at the one hand, the the opposition's focus is very much on cost of living pressures and things like that, but also paying down the debt that obviously has been accrued over the last decade or so. So they kind of want to say you're you're making it harder for people to pay for petrol and things like that, but at the same time saying, well, debt and deficit is getting out of control. And, and I think that that was Jane Hume attempting to have it both ways in that, and it didn't really pan out for her. No, it was very badly framed, that's for sure. Look, the point she's making is something sometimes Labor and opposition also said, which is we're not the government, they should deal with it. But if you front for a big interview on issues, you need to have some ideas that you're putting forward, not just not just a wall of opposition or critique. That's just that's just the way that's the way the cookie crumbles, my friends. So um, yeah, not a great look, and uh, clearly that's why it went viral. Uh, Josh, thanks for uh, joining us in the party room. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, Josh, thanks for trying to help all those Optus customers and. You know, there's millions of them and some of them are only just finding out now that they're part of that breach. So uh, thanks for trying to help shed some light on it all. Yeah, I might feel sorry for all the Optus customers. I'm glad I'm not one of them, unfortunately. <laughs> Me too. See you later, Josh. And Fran, what a big episode it's been. Um, look, it was an extra sitting week this week, just a random sitting week. Um, not enough questions asked, so let's save all our questions for next week. I want people to send in their questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au or use the hashtag thepartyroom on social media and you can, of course, ask us a question there. Yeah, we love your questions. Please do remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's really important. 
That's right. Now, Fran, the party room is one of your projects, or clearly your favourite project. You have another <laughs> project, though. Uh, you'll be on TV screens next week, too, with your new show, Frankly. When is the first show? Well, next Friday, PK, October the 7th, uh, is the first episode of Frankly. It's going to run for eight weeks in this season and it's very exciting. I'm very excited about it. PK, it's a, it's a, it's a big shiny set. I have a live audience and I would really love some of you out there to come along in the flesh. That would be fantastic. If you're in Sydney on a Wednesday night, any time over the next two months, from this coming Wednesday, please come along. And uh, if you check the ABC website, you'll see how to do that. But I'd love to see you there on the Frankly set. So you're saying that you're inviting people to come to your party where there's bands, conversations and good times on a Wednesday night in Sydney, in Ultimo, the ABC's headquarters. But I've been partying with you for nearly seven years and you've never invited me to a party that good. Mm, Well, I guess that's what I'm saying, PK. Everyone come along, PK. Your invitation's in the mail. It is, so you have to actually sign up. It's not literally in the mail, people. Sign up, go along. Live studio audiences are actually really fun and um, I might stick my head up one Wednesday, Fran. That's it for the podcast, though. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.